ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Welcome to ID the Future. I'm Eric Anderson, and joining us again today is Dr. Casey Luskin to continue our discussion about a brand new book he contributed to, Science and Faith in Dialogue, part of the Reformed Theology Africa series. Dr. Luskin is Associate Director at the Center for Science and Culture at Discovery Institute. He holds a law degree from the University of San Diego, bachelor's and master's degrees in earth sciences, and a PhD in geology from the University of Johannesburg. Thanks for joining us again, Casey. Well, it's great to be back with you, Eric. So this chapter has been really awesome to read. The last two times we spoke, we talked about the details of the fossil record, and we talked about the claim that humans and chimps share 99% of their DNA, which proves that you know we have a common ancestor, and we talked about some of the issues around that claim. And today what I wanted to talk about a little bit is something that makes us particularly unique as humans. And you have a section titled Evolutionary Psychology and Human Morality. I was blown away by this initial part where you said in the Maripang Museum, as you walk in to the main fossil hall at the museum, there's a quote from Richard Dawkins, which says, we are survival machines. Robot vehicles blindly programmed to preserve the selfish molecules known as genes. And there's there's a display stretching from the floor to the ceiling with a young man and a chimp and Dawkins quote there. I mean, it must have been amazing for you to see that when you first walked into the museum. It really was quite a striking thing to see, Eric, especially since I know that many, many school children in the Johannesburg area will go to this museum. It's almost like a rite of passage. I, I met many young kids when I was in South Africa. My wife and I actually got conscripted to launch a junior high group at our church. So, I mean, we knew, we knew a lot of kids and they would go to this museum and they would see these things, you know, Richard Dawkins telling them that they're merely survival machines Robot vehicles blindly programmed to preserve the selfish molecules known as genes. I mean, what? Like, that is materialistic ideology. And I i don't remember seeing a museum that promoted uh, such materialism so strongly. Uh, but there it was from floor to ceiling at the Maripang Fossil Museum. Yeah. So pushing this idea that our real purpose as human beings is nothing more than to survive and reproduce. And going back to Darwin himself, who said, in the descent of man, his purpose in writing that was to show that there's no fundamental, I'm quoting, to show that there's no fundamental difference between man and the higher mammals in their mental faculties. But what does the evidence really show, Casey, as you as you look at it? Yeah, so it's really interesting because we have to ask the question, does human behavior appear to be nothing more than programmed to preserve our selfish mm-hmm. genes? And so when we look at at human behavior, we find that there are many behaviors that we have that seem to have higher purposes than merely preserving our selfish genes. So for example, evolutionary psychologists have tried to explain the origin of the human moral and intellectual and religious inclinations. And that's because it seemed like such explanations were so difficult for them to produce. There was a former Harvard evolutionary psychologist named Mark Hauser who said that we are born with a moral grammar wired into our neural circuits by evolution. And I would say he's right that we do seem to be hardwired for morality, but how do we know that it came about through a standard, you know, unguided evolutionary process? So there are various evolutionary explanations that attempt to explain um, human morality. We might have, for example, reciprocal altruism, where you will share food with your neighbor because sometime later they might share food with you. Or you might have kin selection, where you will 
uh, help members of your family survive because they share some of your genes after all. So by, by helping your sister's children survive, you're actually helping to pass on some genes that are actually in your own genome. What's interesting is if is this, you know, according to Richard Dawkins in a standard evolutionary view, if these explanations are true, then there's no such thing as truly selfless love. All we're actually doing is behavior that gives kickbacks to our selfish genes, whether we realize it or not. Okay. But then we come across so many examples of human behavior, which it's very difficult to explain how it's giving any kickbacks to your selfish genes. So for example, um, one evolutionary biologist recognizes that people often, when they come across strangers trapped in a car, they will help those strangers to escape, even at risk of their own lives. Mm-hmm. They don't know those people. They're not getting any kickback to their selfish genes. They're, they're risking their lives to help a stranger. Or there's the really wonderful, beautiful example of uh, Oscar Schindler. And he was, of course, the German businessman who risked his life and his social status during World War II to prevent the deaths of hundreds of Jews at the hands of the Nazis. He was not doing this to help members of his tribe or members of his own, you know, whatever, evolutionary clan, so to speak. He was risking his own evolutionary success just to help other human beings. Um, And there are many other behaviors, such as, you know, uh, voluntary poverty or celibacy or martyrdom that human beings engage in that have no apparent evolutionary benefit. Um, And not only these behaviors exist, Eric, but we tend to respect and honor these behaviors as the greatest examples of what a human being can do. Right. So is this what you would expect if our genomes, our brains evolved on the African savanna a million years ago where all that they needed to do was give kickbacks to our selfish genes? I don't think so. There is something about human behavior which seems to be programmed for purposes higher than merely preserving your genes. Um, and there are so many examples of this. I mean, let's also look at, at religion or our intellectual abilities. You know, Some evolutionary psychologists will claim that we can explain the evolutionary origin of religion because it sort of helps to foster group cohesion that aids in our survival. But is that really explaining the totality or the, the essence of what religion is? So, I mean, how do you explain young men or women entering monasteries mm-hmm. to devote their lives to God? I mean, that's the opposite when you, when you take those vows of celibacy, you become an evolutionary dead end, most of the time at least, right? In theory at least, those are evolutionary dead ends right. when, you, when you take those vows of celibacy and you enter a monastery to serve God. Um, or what about the, you know, the religious ascetic who willingly dies at the hands of his worst enemies, believing that his own death will save him? We're, we're talking about someone like Jesus, of course, right? Mm-hmm. Well, Jesus, of course, is lauded by everybody, whether they are a Christian or not. Um, everybody respects the fact that Jesus died to save his enemies, right? Died out of love for those who were killing him. So why do we honor behaviors like this if we are simply programmed to serve our selfish genes? I think that evolutionary psychology explanations of religion really fail to capture the totality of religious experience and struggle to explain many religious beliefs and behaviors that are strikingly non-adaptive. Yeah. So what I think we're, we're seeing is, you know, of course, let's also talk about human intellectual abilities. Why do human beings practice science? Why do human beings build cathedrals? Why do we compose sonnets? Why do we write symphonies? Why do we uh, study the secrets of the universe? Why does Einstein struggle away in, in the basement of uh, some physics building trying to understand the secrets of the universe to unlock how relativity works, right? We could ask all these questions. None of these things 
seem to be necessary to help us survive on the African savanna a million years ago. Okay. And yet they are seen as humanity's greatest achievements, our highest behaviors, our most honored and cherished activities that we do. So I think that what this shows is that human beings are not mere survival machines. And actually we are designed for higher purposes far beyond merely giving kickbacks to our selfish genes. And I think that there's a real problem here for someone who wants to take an adamant evolutionary worldview. We are not merely programmed to serve our selfish genes. Yeah, it's a really stilted and oppressive and frankly naive view that everything has to be reduced to a you know, an effort to survive, an effort to pass on our genes, if you want to even go that far. It, I mean, it's just really incredible to try to put all of human behavior into that that uh, little tiny box and say, well, that's that's our explanation, especially when the explanations tend to be just made up stories that can go one way as well as another. I liked your example in the chapter. You said somebody might argue that our fear of water evolved to help us avoid drowning. And somebody else might turn around and argue that we love water and we love swimming because it evolved to help us uh, avoid predators, you know, get away from predators when, when they're after us, you know. So it all, it all really becomes this narrative back to what we talked about in, in uh, our earlier conversation where the narrative is really controlling rather than the evidence. And you have this quote from Philip Skell. I just want to read this because this is really telling. He says, Darwinian explanations are often too supple. Natural selection makes humans self-centered and aggressive, except when it makes them altruistic and peaceable. Or natural selection produces virile men who eagerly spread their seed, except when it prefers men who are faithful protectors and providers. When an explanation is so supple that it can explain any behavior, it is difficult to test it experimentally, much less use it as a catalyst for scientific discovery. Yeah, exactly, Eric. I that's a great quote. I'm so glad you read that quote. I I, I like to call it the game of evolutionary psychology. Mm. Um, if you want to play the game of evolutionary psychology, all you have to do is speculate about how some given behavior provided an evolutionary advantage in some given situation in some ancient long lost scenario. You know, hundreds of thousands or millions of years ago. And if you've done that, then you play the game. You've shown how the behavior gives a benefit, and, and, and that's all you have to do. But of course, that means that you can explain both a behavior and its opposite quite easily. So you mentioned swimming, but we could talk about monogamy. I mean, sometimes it's advantageous to be faithful to your mate, but sometimes it's advantageous to go and be promiscuous and spread your seed around. Or we could talk about cannibalism. You know, sometimes it's advantageous to be very kind to your neighbor and to share food with your neighbor. And sometimes it's advantageous to turn your neighbor into dinner, right? So all of these behaviors evolved according to evolutionary psychology. And it's when you're explaining both a data point and its opposite, you have to sometimes right. ask if a theory is really a predictive, rigorous theory that is that is giving you any kind of a, a useful model to work with. Um, and I think a lot of these, one of the you know classic criticisms of evolutionary psychology is that it just produces just so stories that don't have to be backed by any evidence. And the good news is that there are some, I might call them reformers in the field of evolutionary psychology who are calling people to actually, you know, link their explanations to neural modules and to show that this is a realistic scenario, et cetera, et cetera. It still begs the question, you know, can evolutionary psychology ever explain anything uh, and, and meet these standards? I don't know. I do know this much is that a lot of what we see in evolutionary psychology today is, is non-predictive and leads a lot to be uh, desired. Yeah. 
So, Casey, speaking of Africa and the Maripang Museum there, is there anybody who's taking a different view of human origins than this reductive, you know, meat machines designed for survival kind of approach that everything resulted from mutations and selection? Well, you won't know it if you visit the Maripang Museum because it only promotes the standard evolutionary sort of materialistic approach to human origins. But there is a scientist who is featured at the Maripang Museum, it doesn't talk about this, uh, who was actually a proponent of intelligent design. Hmm. And his name is Robert Broom. Uh, Robert Broom was a South African medical doctor and anatomist who discovered Mrs. Pless, a famous Australopithecus specimen in 1947. And he made many important contributions to paleoanthropology in South Africa and arguably was one of the founders of the field of paleoanthropology in South Africa. And it turns out that Robert Broom was actually a proponent of intelligent design. I would call him sort of a, an intelligent design proponent in the spirit of Alfred Russell Wallace, mm-hmm. where he believed that humanity had an evolutionary history, but he thought that it was not a strictly unguided evolutionary history. And there needed to be some intelligent guidance, intelligent agent guiding the evolution of humans. So, for example, in in 1933, he published an article in the South African Journal of Science titled, Evolution, Is There Intelligence Behind It? And in this article, he said uh, that Lamarckism and Darwinism seem to fail completely, and one feels that mutation is quite out of the question if it is the result of pure accident, and only conceivable if an intelligent agency is behind it. I mean, You could have seen that in a book by any intelligent design theorist published in the last 20 or 30 years, right, Eric? I mean, this is just amazing. He's quite prescient, actually. Another book he wrote in 1933, the title was The Coming of Man, Was It Accident or Design? Uh, He writes that one feels driven to the conclusion that some intelligent power has played a part in the evolution. He goes on to argue that intelligent design is found throughout vertebrate history. He says, quote, many see nothing in it but a succession of fortuitous mutations, which by the selection of the blind forces of nature have resulted in the evolution of a Shakespeare and a Newton from a fish. I fancy I can trace intelligence behind it all, unquote. So, I mean, Robert Broom is a giant in the history of South African science. He's one of the founders there of the the field of paleoanthropology, but I would say he was unmistakably also a proponent of intelligent design, especially and particularly in human origins. So in my view, I think that there is good precedent for the field of paleoanthropology in South Africa to return to its roots and consider intelligent design as a viable explanation for human origins. And again, I'm not saying we throw all the evolution out. Robert Broom didn't do that. But let's see where some features of biology, some aspects of human origins are perhaps best explained by an intelligent cause rather than strictly undirected causes like natural selection. Well, Casey, I've sure enjoyed this chapter that you wrote. I highly recommend that our listeners go check it out. Again, you can download that at discovery.org forward slash B, B for book. And just in conclusion here, as we've talked over the last few episodes, Casey, about human origins, maybe just summarize for us the three aspects, paleoanthropology, the genetic evidence, and then the uniqueness of, of our human experience and our human traits. So what's the takeaway? Sure. So I would say that in in each of these fields we've discussed in this little podcast series, Eric, paleoanthropology and genetics and evolutionary psychology, we find evidence for design in the human species. In paleoanthropology, we find that there is a distinct break in the fossil record that is associated with the abrupt appearance of our genus Homo. And this 
abrupt appearance pattern challenges a Darwinian explanation, and it suggests, I would call it a rapid infusion of information into the biosphere, which could be best explained as an instance of design in the history of humanity. In genetics, we see that humans have significant biomolecular differences from other species and that really there is no objective standard for concluding that just because we have you know, a high genetic similarity between one species and another, that therefore it's the result of common ancestry or unguided evolution. And in fact, many functional similarities between human beings and chimpanzees can be explained by common design. And I think that when we, we talked about all this evidence for function in junk DNA, that's undermining a lot of these arguments for common ancestry and for an, a, a standard evolutionary history. Then you get into the population genetic side of that, and we're finding that there's no way that you could evolve the numerous genetic differences between humans and chimps by random mutation and natural selection. Even though we have six to eight million years to work with, since we shared a common ancestor with chimps, there's no way that that could all be an unguided evolutionary history. And then lastly, we talk about evolutionary psychology, and I would say that humans have uh, many behaviors that are far beyond what is required to simply survive and reproduce on the African savanna a million years ago. We appear to be designed for purposes much higher than just winning some survival contest over the last couple million years. And so I think that intelligence design has a long tradition within paleoanthropology, and it ought to be reconsidered by scientists who are willing to follow the evidence where it's leading. Excellent. Well, Casey, thanks so much for being with us over these last few episodes to help us understand more about this incredibly important topic of our human origins. Thank you, Eric. It's been a lot of fun and great questions. I appreciate the interviews. You bet. Thank you for listening to this episode of ID the Future. To learn more about our human origins, as well as other important topics, check out the new book, Science and Faith in Dialogue. For ID the Future, I'm Eric Anderson. Thanks for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by Center for Science and Culture.